Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm your host, Bob Salzberg, along with co-host Sarah Whitmire. We're talking about the Indiana General Assembly today, and we have three guests with us. Senator Roderick Bray, a Republican from District 37, is the president pro tem of the Senate. Senator Shelley Yoder, a Democrat from District 40, is the assistant minority caucus chair. I should say Senator Bray is from Martinsville and Senator Yoder is from Bloomington. And also joining us is Brandon Smith, the Indiana Public Broadcasting's um, Statehouse reporter, and he always adds a lot to our program, giving us his independent viewpoint. So we appreciate him being here today, too. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can send us your questions there, and you can also send us questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. It's great to have all of you with us today, and I want to start with Senator Bray, and I, and I want to ask you a, a sort of a broad question, and hopefully Senator Yoder can um, answer the same question. And that is, you know, we were just a few weeks into this session. Uh, how would you characterize it at this point, and have there been any surprises? Well, thanks, first of all, for having me on. Pleasure to be with all of you. And uh, this session, while we're only a few weeks in, it's a short session. We are scheduled to end by March the 14th. So we're also nearly done with the first half of the session, which means the Senate bills are about to pass back over or pass over to the House. And now and then we'll start to debate the House bills uh, that they have passed. Uh, our priority items are just a, a few in number, but um, uh, some modifications to the automatic taxpayer refund that has already passed and headed over to the House as well as some changes to the uh, uh, the uh, school student count that deals uh, primarily with our K through 12 public school funding, which is very important to them. That was a change that was made required based on all the contact tracing and students who were kind of sent home at the beginning of the school year. There's a lot of schools dealing with that again right now with the Omicron variant. And uh, a third item to change, uh, to make some changes that would allow the governor to uh, take it, the state of Indiana out of the current emergency, or, emergency orders, which we've been in now for uh, more than a year and a half or so. And so uh, those are all proceeding pretty well. Uh, by the end of uh, next week, we'll have those completed, along with a lot of other things that I think we'll talk about today. But the bottom line is that it's been a very quick session, started quickly, but we're making a lot of progress. Senator Yoder? Yes, I want to thank you for inviting me on the show. It's good to be here with Senator Bray and have an opportunity to connect our communities with what's happening at the State House. And thus far, with it being a short session, it definitely has been long days. Uh, we're sort of fast and furious. And as Senator Bray had mentioned, we will be uh, sort of switching sides and what we've heard on the Senate side will now go over to the House and we will hear what the House has passed uh, in this first half of session. And, you know, some of the, I think, wins uh, for the Senate, uh, I serve on the Education Committee and a positive is um, we, we are going to pass out of committee hopefully this week and I would really love to hear from constituents. Uh, we're going to expand in-state tuition to our DACA students. And that is a step forward for students and for business alike in the state of Indiana. Uh, we're also making sure that the Senate Bill 3 and Senator Bray did speak to this, that if the state of emergency does end in Indiana, we can continue uh, serving 
those Medicaid expansion programs, as well as our SNAP program, which is food stamps in Indiana, that we can make sure that those programs get tied to the federal dollars and to the federal state of, uh, or the federal emergency. And those families and individuals can continue receiving those benefits. But I appreciate so much. I just cannot you know, say it enough, hearing from constituents during this time, uh, it's the greatest honor to be able to serve them in the, uh, in the state Senate. So thanks uh, for that and looking forward to the conversation ahead. All right. Thank you. So Senator Bray and Senator Yoder mentioned some things that, you know, they're, they're happy about that have been going on this uh, so far in the session. Brandon Smith, you're covering it for Indiana Public Broadcasting as you do, as you have every year for many years. Uh, what are some of the things that you're looking at as the session continues? Yeah, well, uh, Senator Bray um, and, and Senator Yoder both brought up that we're approaching the halfway point of the session in terms of uh, switching bills from house to house. And um, a lot of the most controversial bills of the session are coming from the House to the Senate. So I guess they both have something to look forward to uh, in the next few weeks. Um, but uh, a, a big one is uh, Senator Bray mentioned the bill that the Senate is passing would allow the governor to end the state's public health emergency that's been in place since the start of the pandemic. Um, and the way it does that is, is and Senator Yoder mentioned this too, is, is making sure that Indiana can still access uh, you know, a lot of uh, millions in federal funding that's tied to the pandemic, um, uh, increased, uh, um, you know, uh, Medicaid, um, welfare, or, or, or not welfare, but uh, food stamps, excuse me, uh, for Hoosiers, expanded uh, food stamps for Hoosiers. Uh, there's also a, a measure in that that would allow the state to continue making it easier to access the COVID-19 vaccinations for children under the age of 11. Um, so that's all things that the governor has thought that uh, was important to keep in place so that then he could end the state's public health emergency. Uh, lawmakers generally have thought the same thing. However, the House has a version of that bill that adds in a particularly controversial uh, particularly controversial provisions regarding COVID-19 vaccine mandates by private businesses. And what the House bill does is it effectively makes it impossible for companies to enforce those mandates because it says anyone can, um, like they can now, request a medical exemption to getting it or a religious exemption to getting it. Only it says that the companies have to grant those exemptions no matter what. They can't ask any more about them. If you request it, boom, that's it. You don't have to get the vaccine. You can undergo weekly testing if a company wants to do that, but it can't charge the employee for that as well. Highly controversial. You have pretty much every major healthcare organization, every major business organization opposing that bill. Um, the Senate will have to deal with that in one way or another when it comes over from the House, um, which, it, which it already uh, has passed the House, so the Senate will deal with it in the coming weeks. Uh, another major uh, you know, controversial, but another major bill of the session is a tax cut package that just passed out of the House this week. Um, the House Republican Caucus has proposed more than a billion dollars in tax cuts that would take effect over the next few years. So that's a mix of several business tax cuts, as well as a utility tax that ratepayers pay and, um, and, and a cut to the individual income tax in this state that when it's fully effective, would save a household making about $56,000 a year in Indiana, which is the median wage household uh, income, um, uh, that would save them about $128 in, in taxes. Um, Senate Republicans so far, and certainly Senator Bray can speak to this, and, but he, you know, we just talked to him yesterday about it. They're a little hesitant to go that big that, um, this soon. Um, they point out that this is a non-budget session and that we don't quite know what the economy is going to look like a year from now uh, in terms of there's been so much federal money pouring into the state and it's inflated certainly state revenues to the tune of, you know, a four billion dollar budget surplus expected by the end of this fiscal year, things like that. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, we have at some point those that, you know, that that effect of the stimulus money will die down. You also have inflationary pressure. Um, you still have supply chain issues and worker shortages. So they want to wait until lawmakers write a new budget next session to really go go big on, on tax cuts, which a lot of people do think is possible, certainly because of the state revenue picture. But um, but it, it some caution might be uh, also warranted, at least from Senate Republicans and from Governor Holcomb's perspective. All right, Sarah. Well, I have a couple of questions, but before we do that, we should probably give um, Roger Bray a, a chance to respond to what Brandon just said, I think in particular, probably about the tax cuts. 
Yeah, thanks. Uh, happy to happy to weigh in on there. And Brandon really kind of outlined it fairly effectively, uh, kind of where, where where we are. Uh, we have a little trepidation as to go in that big with a tax cut right now. Uh, there's a number of types of, of tax cuts that are on the table that uh, in the 1002, the House Bill 1002 that have been sent over for the House. Business personal property tax is one. A personal income tax, dropping it from 3.23 to 3.0. We're one of the lowest uh, of states that have income tax. We're one of the couple lowest in the nation with uh, personal income tax now. And uh, likewise, with the business personal property tax, we're we're very competitive in our tax environment for businesses now, which we're very proud of. And uh, so we have to decide whether or not this is needed and, and meaningful. But uh, two main two main points that uh, that I have brought up time and time again as I've had the opportunity to talk about this is one that it's not a budget year and a bud- we do a budget year every odd numbered year. And so we'll do one again next year. We did one in 2021. It's best to do these kind of big policy changes in a budget year because you can look at them comprehensively with all the other revenue generating uh, pieces that we have in our 38 or so billion dollar budget, <clears throat> as well as all the other uh, expenditures that we uh, that we go through. And it's easier to do in a comprehensive way and, and frankly, more effective. And it's very rare, frankly, that we open up a budget and make it make a change like the House is suggesting in this bill. So that's one piece. But probably the larger piece is the idea that um, uh, it is difficult to know where we are right now. We are really blessed as a state in that we're doing so well. We have a very low unemployment rate and revenue continues to come in uh, in a rate that is much faster than projected. That's a great thing. Uh, we've actually had an automatic taxpayer refund that has kicked in that will uh, allow us to pay $545 million towards the uh, unfunded public employees retirement fund that we currently have. And another $545 million that's going to pay out to taxpayers across the state that we're going to put back into the economy. Uh, so that's a, that's a bit of a temporary type of a tax cut that we're benefiting from right now. But the challenge, as Brandon sort of outlined, is we, I'm not nearly smart enough to be able to say with certainty that with all this cash in the economy uh, and, the, and the headwinds that we have, what our economy will look like in 12 or 24 months. We have inflation that's really rearing its head right now. We have perhaps the most significant challenge that the state has right now is workforce challenges. So it's hard for employers to hire people and continue to, to do their business. And... Uh, um, a number of other issues that are out there that are causing challenges to the economy. And as this money burns off that has been in the economy over the last several months, um, what Indiana looks like is, is a little difficult to tell. So it feels, uh, on one level at least, just a bit premature but, uh, to make a billion dollars in tax cuts. So we're going to take a very serious look at it. Love the idea of tax cuts. Probably um, we'll be able to do something like that based on the condition that the state is in here in the next year or so, but we want to be uh, cautious in the way we proceed. I was reading a piece this week in the Wall Street Journal just about how across the country states are flush with cash right now because of the stimulus money. Um, you know, you you mentioned that being one of the reasons Indiana has the surplus, but I'm I'm just curious about the rationale also of sitting sitting on that money when people are struggling and if this is stimulus money um and one on one hand shouldn't that be used to stimulate the economy now Sarah Um, I would love to speak to that I really appreciated at the state of the state Governor Holcomb mentioning mental health services and substance use disorders treatment and ways that the state can respond to the great need that is happening in communities across Indiana. Uh, We also have a real childcare issue and shortage and stressors in Indiana. I was reading an article in The Atlantic this morning, and ironically, it was actually based on research from our own Indiana University psychologists. um, And it was chronicling what parents are being faced day in and day out with COVID and the distress that our parents are feeling in trying to manage either childcare access or uh, closings due to COVID and needing to both work and be available to children and how frequently that's happening and 
it's really uh, causing a lot of distress, but, you know, depression and substance use disorders as a teacher, I see this in the classroom. I know our teachers across Indiana are seeing this in the classrooms. Our homes are feeling this. So can we use these funds to address this great need that Indiana is facing? That's what I would like to see addressed and answered uh, in the work that we do at the state house. Under Bry, did you want to answer that too? Yeah, you know, on some level, uh, some of the, some of the cash that we all are referring to that's in the economy now is sent obviously directly to to Hoosiers and, and people across the nation. So, uh, so that obviously we don't have any control of. We have uh, devoted an awful lot of money in last year's budget and continue to on a lot of these projects. For instance, a hundred million new dollars toward mental health. Mental health has been one of the biggest challenges. It was significant before the pandemic, but there's no doubt in my mind that uh, over the last two years that has been exacerbated by, you know, being kind of isolated, not in your usual routine with the support group and the people that, uh, that you normally surround yourself that can be supportive of you. And so I think we've all seen that. And so, yeah, there's a huge need to put that to work and the state's trying to do that right now with the money that we have. Brandon, I, I know that you want to add something to this. And I was going to ask you also about any public testimony that you've heard about, um, the plans that the that the house has has forwarded about this, but you know you can either answer that or add whatever other points you want to make. Yeah, I'll do both. Um, the the public testimony we heard it was just one committee hearing in the house, um, and it was mostly from business organizations and and groups like that who are obviously very supportive of bills that will reduce um, business taxes in the state. Um, we didn't hear a lot um, from necessarily what you would consider taxpayer advocates. Um, obviously, this does reduce taxes for taxpayers. But what Democrats have brought up and, and Senator Yoder kind of uh, talked about this a little bit is you can do a lot more than cut taxes with a billion dollars. Um, and they, and, you know, they talked about all of those things, childcare, um, uh, student loan debt, um, mental health services, uh, you know, uh, worker shortages, teacher shortages, nursing shortages, et cetera. Um, but I'll also add that, that uh, part of Governor Holcomb's hesitance about doing a big tax cut this year is that he's looking ahead to 2023 when, when lawmakers and uh, the state will write a new budget and seeing some big price tags for things that he would like. Uh, one of them being um, uh, that we have the READY program, uh, which is a, a statewide economic development program. Uh, it was built sort of off of regional cities. and It was $500 million um, that was, uh, came out of the stimulus money that Indiana had access to, the federal stimulus money. Um, the Ready program, hugely successful, got a lot of, it required and got a lot of, of private sector investment tied into programs all across the state and in every region that applied. Uh, he wants to do another round of funding for that. And I don't know how big he wants that to be, but that could be a significant price tag. He's also talking about making a significant investment in how we pay state employees in Indiana. State employees, um, in a lot of cases are not paid very highly uh, across Indiana. Um, So he wants to raise that to to sort of help keep Indiana government competitive when it comes to hiring workers to to deliver the services that Hoosiers count on uh, from their government. And then maybe the biggest price tag of all from the governor in 2023 is he currently has a public health commission that is studying Indiana's public health delivery system at the state and local level. Um, coming out of the pandemic, this is as big a focus as it could, it could ever be. And a big part of the commission's work will be figuring out how much money do we really need in Indiana to effectively fund public health. And it's expected that whatever that number is, it's not going to be small. And so Governor Holcomb is looking at all of these things that he thinks Indiana needs for the health of the state in the future, both the literal health and the figurative health. And he's saying, I don't want to lose out on too much state revenue and cost ourselves a chance to make these investments. So again, talking about a big tax cut in conjunction with a broader budget debate next year makes a lot of sense to him. If you have questions or comments about uh, what's happening at the State House this year with the General Assembly, we have three great guests that you can you can send your questions to today. That was Brandon Smith, the Indiana Public Broadcasting State House reporter. And we also have uh, two senators who are in the middle of the fray. So Senator Roderick Bray from Martinsville in District 37 is the president pro tem of the Senate. And Senator Shelley Yoder from District 40 in Bloomington is the assistant minority caucus chair. 
they're with us today and you can you can send your questions to them news at indiana public media.org and you can also follow us on twitter at noon edition and you can send us questions there senator bray um Brandon outlined some of these House bills that have some more controversial uh, perspectives coming over to the Senate. One of the uh, more controversial issues that we've heard a lot about early in the session is critical race theory and um, the House bill that that would um, basically uh, prohibit teaching that. You had Senate Bill 167, which which talked about school curriculum and you already said that's a non-starter. What do you expect with the house bill that's coming over? Well, I think the house bill, the house will send a bill over and as a, as a, a bit of a correction, it doesn't, nowhere in there does it say critical race theory and it doesn't necessarily address that. What the bill is primarily about and what 167 was about was an effort to try and uh, bring to the floor uh, both parental engagement and transparency so that there's more engagement in, in uh, exactly what the uh, curriculum is in a particular school and um, uh, uh, to make sure it aligns with what the community is, is uh, trying to achieve. And so um, uh, that's, the, that's the primary gist of the bill. I think one of the reasons that uh, 167 got difficult over on our side is you, you take a look at it and the way the form of it is now. And I think the way it is sits in the house, cause I haven't read it since it's been, uh, been changed and modified is that it puts a lot of responsibility on a teacher to uh, upload his or her uh, curriculum um, and lessons that they're going to teach in, a, in any given day, either before the set, the lesson is taught or within five days and uh, so one of the things we've heard a lot about is the, that a teacher would say, all right, I see an article in the Wall Street Journal or the uh, Herald Tribune, whatever paper or uh, wherever you might find it. Well, I'd like to teach that tomorrow because it's exactly what we're trying to talk about. And uh, but oh, I've got 30 papers to grade tonight and I'm going to have to upload that if I'm going to teach it. And it just would cool some of that creativity or or. Um, um, you know, ideas that are coming out of the teachers. And so we've, we've tried to make some changes uh, with that in mind. But the bottom line is 167 just wasn't able to move forward. Uh, I have to take a look at um, uh, the House bill when it comes over. Again, I don't know what exact changes they have made because I've been too busy keeping an eye on our Senate bills on this side. But uh, it, it, it's um, certainly a conversation that's going to get discussed. Senator Yoder? Yeah, I would, I would just, I think... Some of what Senator Bray is saying is true, but there's more to this uh, than just the 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 workload of loading lesson plans on a regular basis. What we heard in committee was from parents and from teachers that when we heard from parents, if they had an issue, they could go to the teacher and that you know, the process worked, that our teachers across the state are engaged. Uh, we, we, we hear that they do feel like they can go to the teacher and they are being able to find a path forward. And this would just codify um, that what teachers would have to do, which makes it very challenging uh, to teach effectively. If you, uh, I think what would have been helpful in something like 167 is to work alongside uh, our, our school corporations and our teachers to find out how can we help make this process even better versus just putting something out there and then having to say there is no path forward. But additionally, uh, what was what was clear is the chilling effect that the language of 167 and what appears to be in 13, uh, 1134 on the House side, the chilling effect uh, that the, these bills would have on uh, in the classroom, the, the classroom censorship. I think the, the difficulties of 167 moving forward was because of those aspects and the kind of attention and feedback that uh, the Senate and the authors of the bill received from parents, from teachers, from students uh, who had serious issue with this uh, bill and 13 or 1134. When it comes to, I think specifically, uh, teaching 
saw, you know, teaching about race in the classroom, teaching about national origin in the classroom, uh, teaching about uh, political affiliation. Uh, when we when we talk about this, what we heard loud and clear is there are topics, and this one was specifically fascism and Nazism. How are we going? You know, what what is what is the bill saying? And we haven't seen the bill, the language in eleven thirty four, but the begging the question: Are there are there topics? Are there things that unequivocally that we have to speak to um, slavery, um, in this case, Nazism, um, rape, are there issues that we in the classroom have to have conversations with students and not be impartial? I think, I think that is a part of where 167, um, has hit a roadblock and what we'll see in 1134. Let me, if I could weigh in a little bit more on that, a little bit about some other things that this, maybe this bill does, but more importantly, some things that this bill does not do. And uh, um, with the idea of that, uh, of uh, the censorship that uh, Senator Yoder kind of just mentioned, um, it doesn't, there was some conversation, uh, Senator Yoder just mentioned it, you've also heard it elsewhere out there in, uh, in stories or reports about either types of bill, that you can't teach something, for instance, that's going to make a child feel uncomfortable. That's not what the bill says at all. In fact, I think it's imperative that we teach things that make kids feel uncomfortable when we talk about racism or fascism or Nazism. And, and, and from my perspective, you don't teach those things necessarily in a neutral way. People need to understand racism and how damaging it's been to our nation and how unfair it is. And the same with uh, uh, the whole idea behind uh, Nazism. And that this bill allows all that to happen. That is imperative that we teach that so kids can learn that mankind, unfortunately, is capable of those types of atrocities so that we can all be cognizant of them and never have them be repeated again. So I want to be very clear about that. There are some things the bill says it needs to that uh, teachers need to stay away from, and that is simply to say it is not appropriate to teach that one race is superior or inferior to another. I don't know of anybody that I've talked to that would disagree with that concept, and that's that's the other piece that this bill was trying to achieve. Brandon, do you want to? Uh, you've been observing uh, this issue. Do you have some observations you'd like to share? Well, first, um, we don't, as both senators have alluded to, we don't know what the final form even of the House bill will take because it's been sitting on the House floor waiting for the House to debate amendments to it for a little while now. Part of that was part of the reason it's been sitting there is because, unfortunately, uh, the bill's author, uh, Representative Tony Cook, his father passed away recently. So um, he's been out, obviously, from the State House, And so they've been holding the bill. Um, we'll see if it comes up for debate over amendments and then for passage on the House floor in the next week or so. Um, but I, I think we've kind of illustrated, even in this conversation, why it's so tricky to write a bill like this. Now, there, I, I kind of separated out into two issues. One, there's a sort of um, a parental engagement and and almost oversight that the bill includes, transparency, that sort of thing. Um, I think a lot of people don't have necessarily a problem with that, depending on how you do it. Um, we sh- Parents should be, we hope, more engaged in what their their children are learning. The question becomes then, what role should parents be able to have in terms of stopping their child or uh, from learning something or preventing a teacher from saying something or even punishing a teacher for saying something, um, depending on what is said? Because, you know, to the point of um, it's easy to say, I think, well, everybody agrees slavery is bad. Everybody agrees the Holocaust is bad. Now, technically, not everybody does, but hopefully the vast majority of people do. Um, it's easy to talk about those things that happened in the distant, more distant past. Um, but, you know, Senator Bray talked about the idea of a teacher reading an article and wanting to incorporate that, but being feeling stifled because of how stringent the transparency might be. And we don't want to stop that. But let's take the example of things that happened in the last couple of years. Let's say the killing of George Floyd uh, in Minneapolis. The, the police officer who did that was found guilty of murder. So we can say, you know, as a journalist, I can say he was murdered as opposed to he was killed uh, in a story, for instance. But how does a teacher talk about that when you have not a small number of parents who 
still think that the police officer did nothing wrong. Um, can the teacher talk about it as a strictly, you know, this was a bad thing that happened? Um, and are parents going to object to that? And if parents object to that, what can the parent do to punish that teacher if they want? That's the difficulty in writing bills like this, which is not to say it can't be done, but it, it sort of exemplifies how tricky it can be. That's really interesting. Thanks for that example, Brandon. Uh, I want to switch gears just a little bit because Brandon, you've been at the state house now. Sarah, for real quick, can I just read? Okay, go ahead. Yeah. So just, just very, very quickly, I promise. But, but I think uh, Brandon's points highlight really the need for that parental engagement, which is really important. But the other thing about, I don't think either bill talks about ever punishing a teacher. It, it runs from, if, if, if a parent has a problem, you go see the principal to get it fixed. If that doesn't resolve, then you go to the uh, superintendent, then to the school board. And even, even if you get all the way to the end of any administrative remedy that you're looking for without, without uh, success uh, or without satisfaction, the only lawsuit that would be possible would be something that would be against the school, never against the teacher individually. That's not, um, uh, wouldn't be an option under either of this, any, any draft for this legislation that I've seen. Okay. Um, uh, Brandon, um, can you talk a little bit about just past sessions? I know you feels like every session, there's some bill that comes up about abortion and uh, you recently reported on this. You can talk about where any issues related to abortion and why we might, might not see any this year. Yeah, we're unlikely to see any major anti-abortion bills this session. Uh, we might see a couple, um, that deal with, with smaller issues, um, uh, in that realm, one having to do with coerced abortions, um, which is already illegal, but I think this would sort of strengthen that language in state law. And another has to do with parental consent, certain parental consent issues around abortion. Uh, but again, not not sort of the meaty bills, if you will, that we've seen almost every year for the past several years. Um, and we just talked to Senator Bray about this yesterday. I talked with uh, along with a colleague, talked with um, Senator Liz Brown, who chairs the Senate Judiciary Committee, which is the committee that that hears abortion bills uh, in the general in that chamber of the General Assembly. And they both said the same thing. Uh, Speaker Todd Houston kind of said the same thing yesterday, which is there aren't going to be any major anti-abortion bills this session because Indiana, like everyone else in the country, and we just heard this at the top of the hour um, uh, from NPR News. We are all waiting to see what the U.S. Supreme Court does on abortion later this year. They have these uh, major cases out of Texas and Mississippi, particularly, um, that could dramatically change the future of abortion rights. And that could be anything from, in the Mississippi case, uh, Mississippi limited abortions to 15 weeks uh, into pregnancy, um, which is far earlier than, than what the Supreme Court has allowed in the past. Um, so if they uphold that law, that would uh, dramatically change what states can do to restrict abortion access. Um, but there's also some who think the Supreme Court could go all the way in overturning Roe v. Wade and essentially allow states to um, outlaw abortion entirely. Um, nobody knows exactly what the court is going to do. And so what lawmakers are saying is, let's wait. Let's find out what the Supreme Court says. And then if they do allow states to more uh, severely restrict abortion access, we can ask the governor for to call a special session later this year after the ruling comes out, uh, come back into that special session and take the steps that the Supreme Court has now said state states can take. Thank you, Brandon. So we've had one, one uh, question emailed in or one topic that uh, our emailer would like for us to talk about. And Senator Bray, I'm going to ask you and um, I want to tell you in the beginning, it's more about the House than the Senate, but they would like to to know if um, your take on a potential rift or what appears to be a a rift on the House side between House leadership and some of the more conservative uh, members of the House, uh, some some discussions about challenges to more moderate members of, of the House in primaries because um, of disagreements with Governor Holcomb, for instance. And we've seen those played out in terms of how Governor Holcomb has handled COVID. Um, Is this something that you're seeing in the Senate, for instance? And is it uh, something that is is making the um, making work at the Statehouse more difficult? Well, let me I'll answer it this way. Um, you know, it's, I think some folks think, all right, there's a strong majority of 
Republicans in the House, strong majority of Republicans in the Senate, and a Republican governor. It, this must be all kumbaya, and that is never the case on any day that I've ever served here. That's a robust conversation about different uh, ways to achieve a goal. There's generally a very um, a strong agreement on the goal to be achieved, whether that's a better economy, better education, whatever the case may be. But how to get there, uh, there are constantly robust conversations about that. And so uh, in the last 12, 24 months or so, that has there's been kind of new issues that have cropped up that are new and very hard to determine the best course of action for. And so yeah, that's created a lot of conflict and strain, but that's the natural way that this building works and frankly, a healthy way. So um, it's, it's just how the place goes. One of, one of the issues that I, I wanted to follow up with you on is the one that's going to come over from the House about um, blocking private companies from enforcing COVID-19 mandates. At least that's how I understand it. And it seems like the Republicans have long been about um, keeping government out of, you know, the private business. And this seems to be a departure from that when a company couldn't, couldn't, couldn't mandate that their employees uh, be vaccinated. Can you respond to that? Sure. Uh, It's an important issue. And uh, I suppose you're right, but we have an awful lot of constituents, myself and others across the state that are hearing from uh, um, constituents that are being forced to decide if they want to do a vaccine, which maybe they have some trepidation in, uh, in having because of a health concern that they have or any other reason, and then or being forced to either take that vaccine, which they're not comfortable with, or walk away from a, a job that's or a career that's been very good to them, and even you know with, with loss of some pensions and things. So people are having being put in a spot where they're making really, really difficult decisions. And um, uh, again, it's it's very difficult. But what we're what we're trying to do, or what the House is trying to do with their 1001, and we've we've worked on that quite a bit already too, is to uh, uh, to craft a a way to kind of thread a needle here that addresses both interests. It is important that employers are able to uh, uh, put their work site in the position that they think is best, and uh, um, uh, we certainly will acknowledge that. It's also very important for people to take care of their own health care and be able to make the decisions that are right for them. So what we're doing here, I don't see a scenario where we probably where where we pass something that says a company cannot do a vaccine mandate. But the language then or the discussion is about, all right, if so, what are those exemptions for religion and medical exemptions? What do they look like? And uh, is there a, a way forward if somebody says, all right, I had COVID 30 days ago or 60 days ago, I shouldn't be required to get the shot now. I think there's a good bit of science out there that suggests that's the case, at least for a while. How long is a little bit more difficult? And then the other issue is if a, uh, an employee can say, okay, not going to get that, te- that vaccine, then the employer would be allowed under the most of the language that I've seen in these bills to say, all right, you have to get a test maybe once a week, maybe once every other week. And the discussion about who pays for that test is, is kind of a robust conversation as well. Should it be the employer? Should it be the employee? There are some ways to get free tests out there. So that kind of encapsulates the issues, but we'll try and find a way that kind of uh, threads the needle and addresses both of those concerns. I, yeah, if I can follow up on this, and then you know, I'd like to hear from Shelley and, and Brandon, Cinder Yoder and, and Brandon, if they have any response. But this is just, you know, for my education, because, you know, I'm a former um, supervisor of, you know, 50 people in a, in a company. And I was always under the impression that while, you know, we didn't fire anybody willy nilly, that I was always told this is an at will state and an employer can let somebody go for any reason at any time. So again, when you're threading the needle, how do you, am I right about that? I guess first, and how do you, how do you make sure you maintain that uh, vision of an at will employer state? Just by providing some exemptions that frankly are already existing in law with religion and the medical exemptions. Um, and I think again, this was already out there part of the federal legislation as well. We're just trying to uh, define them in a better way that fits the state of Indiana. Okay. Shelly? I, I agree with your curiosity, Bob, because I've been wondering the same. And 
I'll be curious to see what the exact language looks like when it comes over from the house. Uh, what I've heard, yes, I have heard from uh, a couple of constituents who have lost their jobs. Now, these were individuals who were working in healthcare. Uh, I have not heard from I have not heard from anyone who has lost their job uh, because of a because an employer um, has, a private employer has uh, demanded this. So, you know, I'll, I'll wait to maybe this will inspire someone to reach out. But uh, I have not heard. I've, I have heard from uh, two individuals who work in, um, in, a, in in a hospital. So what. I have heard, though, is I've heard from uh, many employers who are concerned about how they would ever pay for um, the COVID tests um, for small businesses if they do want to have, a, you know, ask their employees to be vaccinated. Um, and if they if they can't, uh, what we have seen over, especially with Omicron, um, how it has impacted the, the workforce, um, how it's impacted classrooms. Uh, you know, we have to find a way to, in a healthy, with public health at mind and thinking about our neighbors. Uh, and I mean that loosely. I mean, you know, caring for one another. What is the best way forward? Um, I, I want to remain, you know, sensitive to a variety of uh, constituent needs, and yet still thinking about the greater good of how we're going to move through something like a, a global pandemic. Sadly, um, you know, yes, I would like COVID to be the last one, but it it won't. Um, you know, what, what we have heard when it comes to the climate crisis, we, we knew that um, pandemics would come along with uh, climate change. How? I'm not sure how those things are connected, but we have heard and read and uh, know this to be true. So it probably will continue to be an issue. And I, I want to make sure that, you know, we set Indiana up to uh, be prepared for that and uh, have a public health response that's responsible. All right, Sarah. Senator Bray, I'd like to ask you about the handgun licensing bill that I believe passed this week. If I'm, I'm sure you'll correct me here yeah, if I'm I mean, wrong. Yeah. Um, so yeah, House Bill 1077 passed the House this week. Um, so how is that different than handgun bills that have been proposed in the past? Well, so uh, the first thing, if you if you can compare it to the bill that uh, that got most movement last year is it's still the same idea that uh, people who are uh, legal to carry a handgun doesn't really change who's legal to carry a handgun first of all so if you're a felon if you have certain um, uh, domestic violence uh, convictions that are not even felonies but misdemeanors or if you have certain mental illness findings in your history you know you're prohibited from carrying a, a handgun and uh, none of these bills would really would, would change any of that but the issue is do you need a license in order to carry a, a handgun outside of your home or not? And uh, so the issue last year is that it created a, um, it mandated a, a creation of a list of people who could not uh, carry a handgun. And uh, it gave the, it gave two years for the state police, the Bureau of Motor Vehicles and all local law enforcement, et cetera, to kind of put that list together. Uh, I think a lot of people had a problem just with the list alone. Uh, but the uh, the problem, the, the primary problem that I had with that is that you, you can't legally make that list because the 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 way you find out if somebody is uh, uh, not a proper person to carry a handgun is do they have that felony conviction from somewhere in the United States? And you use the NCIC to do that, but you can't go on, law enforcement can't even go on there, the NCIC under most circumstances without some criminal predicate. And so that list really, you're not, weren't able to make it. So it was flawed from the beginning. This year doesn't have that list. It's simply a very streamlined bill that says um, you don't need a license to carry a handgun. Uh, if you're a prohibited person, you can't carry one. And that's, that's a crime if you try to, but uh, there's, there's no list that last year had. Brandon, I want to ask you, uh, you know, you cover the state house on a regular basis. 
Are there any questions that we are uh, leaving? I have a couple more, but I wanted to ask you, make sure that you get to ask any questions you have of our two senators here today that you might use in your reporting, or are there issues that we uh, really need to be talking about? Oh, gosh. Um, I get to talk to these folks uh, all the time. Um, So, no, Bob, you can continue with your questions. I'm curious what you have to talk to them about. Okay, great. Well, I I wanted to just ask... um, Again, each of the senators, and I'll start with, with Senator Bray again. I mean, so how will you assess, you know, at the end, if this is short session has been, you know, one of the best you've ever, uh, ever had or one of the more challenging that you've ever had? Is there some outcome that you're looking for that you really hope you can make sure and get through? Yeah, I suppose there is. Uh, that's an interesting way to, to characterize the question. Uh, one thing I really value about this building is that uh, when we walk away from here, here um, at the end of a session, you know, you can you can point to a number of concrete things that started in January and got finished by the end of session. And uh, oftentimes um, there's some debate about it, but oftentimes are very helpful to, to Hoosiers. One thing that I'm pretty excited about this year that we're working on is, you know, the governor appointed a new secretary of commerce and um, he has some fantastic ideas and an awful lot of energy. And uh, uh, we were working with him to kind of uh, make Indiana a little bit more competitive when it comes to uh, attracting other businesses here in the state of Indiana. I think right at this period of time in history, we have several industries that are uh, around the nation that are trying to find homes. And that might be something like robotics or, you know, batteries in particular for vehicles. And um, if we can, if we can recruit some of those here, they over the next several decades would become companies that are fantastic neighbors like like Eli Lilly that we have right now. But in order to be successful at that, we have to become a little more streamlined in our efforts. The uh, uh, used to be you go on for months and months in the courting of a business. Now it seems to be happening in 60 to 90 days. And uh, we need to change some of our uh, statutes in order to be able to be that flexible. And, uh, and make some of the funds uh, more fungible that the uh, that so that uh, the sec the uh, uh, Indiana Econo- Economic Development Corporation co- can go out and recruit those in a way that has a fantastic return on investment for the public dollars that we might put forward to invest in some of these efforts. But if we can get some of those companies now, that I think they'll be great partners for for many 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 years to come and and create lots of opportunities for Hoosiers. And so we're working on something now as a, as a bill carried by Senator Mishler, who's a chair of our appropriations committee. And uh, we're really looking forward to what that may be able to, be, be, may be able to do for us. Before I let uh, Senator Yoder answer that same question, I, I appreciate your, your comments. I, I know that we tend to focus a lot on bills that have some controversy and some headline value, but a lot of bills that get through the state house and a lot of the work that you do up there has um, more bipartisan support and uh, more support than maybe we in the media sometimes are willing to admit. So, Senator Yoder. That is true. And I would say this has been my my both the, the best short session I've ever been in and the worst because it's my only one. Um, this is my second year to serve and my first for, uh, short session. And I would say I, you know, I, we've had some really robust conversations uh, in utilities and I really encourage people to, so, uh, if you can, watch or listen to the conversation we had yesterday. You know, we are looking at siting for small modular reactors uh, in Indiana. And I think Hoosiers should definitely um, start reading and learning about what that means and what that looks like. These aren't large nuclear uh, sites, but small ones and see what's happening in other states uh, looking at this, because this is definitely um, a direction we're asking uh, when it comes to siting, we're asking for uh, ratepayer support. And so that is a shift for the state of Indiana because we don't have anything like that. We're doing some you know, really good work when it comes to dealing with wastewater, stormwater, drainage, and uh, drinking water. And that is critical to both uh, the health, we've talked about pub- public health, but both to the health of Hoosiers and 
ultimately to being able to attract business, as uh, Senator Bray said. So those conversations are are critical uh, to the present and future of Indiana. So I I have appreciated. I said that this is my second year. And one of the real attractions to public service is the amount of the the amount of information that you get to to learn on a variety of subject matters. And as people who are listening in, I I hope that you are inspired to get more involved in the process. I I like to say we, the state house is a beautiful house. It's the people's house, but ultimately it's just four walls and we need, you know, that we need people to come and to testify, share their experiences and listen and learn and get, get active. Uh, because ultimately it's all of our democracy and it's important that uh, people protect it and practice it because it, it does take work to keep that democracy healthy and alive. Brandon, we only have one minute. I'm going to let you take us out. So uh, similar question to you. I mean, what, when you look at the last, uh, at the next three or four weeks of this session, I mean, what, what will you look at to see, uh, to, to say whether you think it's a very productive session? I think it'll be a productive session in, in, in part because of the volume of bills that are moving. This has been a fast and furious session. Even, I mean, I've been here for more than a decade now, and this is one of the uh, most uh, fast and furious short sessions I've been a part of. So a lot will be just about how both chambers can hammer out their differences because we've seen in the last few years, sometimes you come up to the finish line and don't quite make it because things fall apart right at the end. I don't think that'll happen this year, but it's always a possibility. All right. Senator Bray, any last words? I just want to thank you for being on and agree with what you said, Bob, that a lot of the work we do is not sexy and doesn't get headlines. And that's some of the most important work. And we appreciate working with our, uh, my colleague, uh, Senator Yoder here today. All right. Well, I want to thank you for being here with us today. Senator Roderick Bray from Martinsville and district 37, the president pro tem of the Indiana Senate and Senator Shelley Yoder from district 40 in Bloomington, who's the assistant minority caucus chair and Brandon Smith from Indiana Public Broadcasting session. Uh, our our show was on the legislature today, and uh, it was a good one. We covered a lot of territory. For my co-host, Sarah Whitmire, for producers Benta Boutier and Holden Abshire, and for engineer John Bailey, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomh